The following Bookhart's Press Lecture was delivered on Monday, the 16th of April, 1990, by Ian Willison, General Editor of the History of the Book in Britain. His topic was The Role of the History of the Book in the Humanities, The History of the Book, Critical Theory, and the Study of Literary and Cultural Change and Continuity. Good evening. Those of you who are regulars on these occasions, which is many of you, will recall that next Monday, Shakespeare's birthday, already, yes, April 23rd, you have off. But, at least so far as I am concerned, uh, you will, of course, do nothing else all day next Monday, I'm sure. The following Monday, however, you are due back here on the 30th for Richard Sharp, the new about-to-be-lecturer in diplomatics at Oxford University, speaking on the difficulties of the new author in Angevin, England, followed on the 6th of May, the following, the 7th of May, the following Monday, by Rosamund McKittrick, talking about the difficulties of being published in, 19th, in 9th century France. <coughs> We have a blessed event to announce, which is that after much labor on the part of many people, the 1988 Malkin Lecture has been published, and it is my pleasure to give the first copy to Marianne Malkin. Copies for the Friends of the Book Arts Press are in the mail or about to be in the mail. I see all of the mailers are in the audience. They can tell me this more than I. Uh, and in any event, uh, will be available shortly. This is Roger Stoddard's 1988 Malkin Lecture, Put a Resolute Heart to a Steep Hill, William Gowan's Antiquarian Bookseller, a lecture given on 12 December 1988. And it is illustrated. Perhaps it also has a spine, which is a first for us. Perhaps the next one will have a spine label. Meanwhile, it's our pleasure to welcome Ian Willison, who has probably given more Book Arts Press lectures than anyone else, not excluding me, on uh, what he usually talks about, which is the humanities and the book and the history of the book and its prospects. He's always worth listening to. It's a great pleasure to welcome him back. Ian Willison. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Am I audible? Now, as Terry has said, I've been talking about the relationship between the history of the book and the humanities on and off for quite a few years. And I have to say that this evening, I want to try to bring... Uh, these various thoughts to some degree of systematic uh, conclusion. Uh, my title is, I'm afraid, rather formidable. The role of the history of the book in the humanities, the history of the book, critical theory, and the study of cultural change and continuity. And I'm afraid that's rather a serious title. I do propose to cover a rather broad 
uh, and rather abstract uh, and complicated territory. And in that, um, given that in mind, I, I hope you'll forgive me if I read what I have to say rather than attempt to uh, improvise, because improvisation on this degree of, um, of range, we will be here for about uh, most of the evening. I'm afraid also I'm going to have to allude to a lot of uh, uh, discussion in critical theory in a rather brief way, and I hope those of you who are not entirely familiar with Derrida, Stanley Fish, and uh, all the denizens of Duke University English Department will bear with me that it, I am referring to something that is really rather serious uh, uh, and important. Here goes. Over the past few years, a significant development in the humanities has been the launching, and in one leading case, the completion of a number of national histories of the book, in Germany, in Britain, in the USSR even, here in the United States at the American Antiquarian Society, and, and the one completed in 1986 in four large volumes in France, the Histoire de l'édition française, edited by Jean Martin and Roger Chartier. Now, all these involve substantial resources in terms not only of finance from central agencies such as the National Endowment for the Humanities in this country, the Centre National des Lettres in France and the Leverhulme Foundation in Britain, but also of manpower. Now, as one of the three general editors of the British history of the book, the history of the book in Britain, in my title, a major purpose of my present visit has been to begin hunting for at least some, if not more than some, of the 70-odd heads which we shall be needing for our project and which we have little chance of finding within the critically harassed world of the humanities in Britain. And it would seem no vastly better chance in the similarly harassed world here in the United States. Even so, the history of the book in the words of one of its leading practitioners, Robert Darnton of Princeton, is one of the most fertile developments in the human sciences. <clears throat> now this brings me to my subject. Briefly, the present crisis in the humanities <clears throat> is primarily due not to the hostility of the conservative political regimes of the 80s, and we must assume at least the opening years of the 90s, but to the inability of the humanities themselves to give effective answers to the hard-nosed questions politicians have been asking and have had to ask about the, ra about the rationale, the coherence, and the effect of the practice of the humanities ever since the Aristotelians induced the Ptolemies to launch the whole philological enterprise in Alexandria well over 2,000 years ago. Now, I do not think this particular audience would wish me to rehearse yet again the painful detail of the closing of the American and come to that British mind, if such it be, due to the non-connection hitherto between, on the one hand, critical and literary theory, uh, represented, as I say, by Derrida, Stanley Fish, uh, Frederick Jameson, uh, uh, and, uh, et al., and traditional meat and potatoes, teaching and research on the other. I would, however, suggest in passing consolation that such disconnection has a number of precedents that were not altogether unhealthy in their outcome. 
the hostility between the philosophes and the erudits in the 18th and early 19th centuries, culminating in the debate between Hegel and Niebuhr that launched, the modern, that launched modern professional scholarship, comes to mind, as does that between the scholastic and the monk in the, Renaissances of the 12th, in the Renaissance of the 12th and 13th centuries. What I wish to suggest here is that the history of the book is an enterprise which, by helping to illuminate cultural change and continuity in general, can help reintegrate theory and research as at present disconnectedly practiced. And at the same time, it can thereby solidify its own somewhat volatile constituency and consequently its claim on professional resources, a matter I think of some interest in particular to graduate library schools in this country and in the United Kingdom, a matter we might pick up uh, at the, uh, at the end uh, when I have finished. As an observer, it seems to me clearly no accident that both critical theory and the history of the book date effectively, that is to say, began to concern the world of learning at large from the 1960s onwards. If I had to choose the major landmarks, they would be on the side of critical theory and its, as the phrase goes, problematics, the reception in 1960 of Claude Lévi-Strauss, the problematic of race, and Roland Barthes, the problematic of language, into two of the French academic citadels, the Collège de France in the case of Lévi-Strauss and the École Pratique des Autitudes in the case of Roland Barthes. Then, the publication, also in 1960, of Hans-Georg Gadamer's Wahrheit und Methode, the problematic of mind, one might call it, and it, the influence of that on the so-called Constant School of Hermeneutics represented by Jaus and Wolfgang Iser. And then, on the side of the history of the book, the publication in 1962 of Marshall McLuhan's Gutenberg Galaxy, which I might say dealt with the problematic of text. Finally, on behalf of the British, who up till recently at least, one has tended to forget in this particular context, I would suggest that the setting up of the Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies at the University of Birmingham by Richard Hoggart in 1964 marked the beginning of practical interaction between critical theory and the history of the book. For example, the Birmingham Centre both designed and compiled the innovatory section on book production and distribution in volume four of the new Cambridge Bibliography of English Literature, which was published, it so happened under my editorship, in 1972, and which was certainly one of the preliminaries to our present project in Britain. But this is to anticipate. The point I wish to make here is that if we set aside the inevitable case of what Cornford used to call young men and would now add young women in a hurry, that systematic interest in both critical theory and the history of the book in the sense in which we know them now was a serious response to what we might term the most recent of the major cultural changes in the history of the West, the so-called crisis of the 1960s. In retrospect, this crisis involved a compulsive and radical enlargement of, to use T.S. Eliot's phrase, the received definition of culture. An enlargement, one, socially, the reception into scholarly discourse of popular, alternative and feminist cultures. Secondly, ethnically, the acceptance of life beyond the melting pot, in the words of the New Yorkers Glazer and Moynihan. 
Three, geopolitically, the final declarations not only of political but also of cultural independence on the part of former peripheries of the Imperial West, principally in Africa. And fourthly, most significant for us here, structurally, the subverting in 1968 of the professoriate and its high cultural authority over a canon embodied in books and libraries and the replacement of canonical high culture by a variety of incohesive subcultures suspended in the media, a development anticipated a century earlier by the then new professor of philology at Basel, one Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche. Critical theory may be seen as the attempt of the professoriate to re-establish its authority by developing synchronic perspectives derived from its experience of 1968 to contain, to intellectually order, and thus to canonize this radical enlargement of cultural experience. The history of the book may be seen as a complementary attempt to embed this newly perceived relativity of the book in diachronic factual record, historically historical factual record, and thereby to feel more at ease with the historically inevitable plurality of the modes whereby authority is embodied in the media in general, rather than the book in particular, from pre-literate orality onwards. It is the conjunction and interaction between the two, the ordering of philological fact in theoretical perspective and the embodying of theoretical perspective in philological fact, that helps best to integrate the humanities. And it is the aim of the history of the book in Britain to help promote this conjunction. My co-joint editor, Don McKenzie, having produced in 1986 a virtual manifesto of this in his, his bibliography and the sociology of texts. Basing myself on McKenzie, let me now indicate the overall agenda we are setting ourselves. It is true the conjunction in this sense between critical theory and the history of the book has been coming for some time, most effectively, at least to my mind, in the so-called new literary and cultural political history, history writing. Foreshadowed by the admittedly somewhat cavalier exposés which emerged from the above-mentioned British centres for cultural studies, Raymond Williams's The Long Revolution, for example, appeared as long ago as 1961, I find that the 1980s have been characterized by a number of major revisionist histories of national literature. All these depend on the concepts of cultural production produced by second-generation theorists such as Pierre Bourdieu at the École Pratique, now the Maison de Sciences de l'Homme, and they all aim precisely to square past historical record with our own traumatically enlarged cultural experience by bringing into focus the facts as well as the perspective of the history of the production of texts of publishing, disseminating, reading, and archiving in libraries of text. An example of such revisionist history should be the forthcoming Cambridge History of American Literature, which we can take Jane, Tompkin, Jane Tompkins' Sensational Designs or Kathy Davidson's Revolution of the Word, uh, Lawrence Buell's New England Literary Culture as anticipations. Less widely known in the English-speaking world of learning than they should be, or so I have the impression, are the multi-volume German 
Hans's Sozialgeschichte der Deutschen Literatur, Social History of German Literature, published by the Karl Hanser Verlag in Munich, and the Literatura Italiana, published by Einaudi in Milan, in Italy. And of particular interest to us in the English-speaking world, as having appeared in the bicentennial of a former periphery, is Larry Hergenen's The New the Penguin New Literary History of Australia. All these, I just add, uh, are constructed, their, their narrative uh, axis, so to speak, their exposition is bound up with an exposition of the state of the book trade, the world of the book, at particular points uh, uh, of, uh, in the, in the uh, historical development of the history they are uh, expounding. Uh, the history of the book is an integral part of uh, expounding the literary history. An even more recent refinement is the intensifying of scholarly focus on the constructive some might say distorting, effect on individual authors of their publishing history. A development, might say, was projected in critical theory by Roland Barthes' Death of the Author. Examples of what is becoming known as textual biography are Simon Gatchell's Hardy the Creator of 1988 and Warwick Gould's forthcoming Yeats's Permanent Self, Canon, Arrangement and Order in the Collected Works. Both these books, I, uh, just to help, uh, are based on their exposition of the literary career of uh, both Hardy and Yeats, uh, 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 based on intensive use of the uh, correspondence, the business relations between Hardy and Yeats on the one hand, and Macmillan, particularly in the case of Yeats, Harold Macmillan, uh, on the other. Textual biography, as distinct from conventional high cultural literary biography, uh, the um, Michael Holroyd's uh, Life of Shaw, uh, for example, is having a substantial effect on text-critical theory and practice in both its hermeneutic and its editorial modes. Stephen Mayu's interpretative conventions, in, in particular his chapter on textual scholarship and author's final intention, provides a recent survey of the state of the art. Nevertheless, the conjunction between theory and philology is not yet complete. Perspective, theoretical perspective, is not yet adequately embodied in fact, thus critical theory is still too scholastic in its schematism and in its polemic. And on the other hand, fact is still imperfectly ordered by perspective. Thus, progress in the history of the book, particularly in the English-speaking world, but also in Germany, it so happens, is still hampered by the blockage traditional historical bibliographers feel in working with those we might call cultural anthropologists, represented by Robert Danton and his collaboration with Clifford Geertz at Princeton. See, for example, the conclusion to his The Great Cat Massacre. Moreover, Critical theory requires the conjunction to occur at the level of text rather than book. This involves more than the strictly technological aspects of the book which have tended to preoccupy professional historical bibliographers in the past. And even on this technological level, this involves non-book forms such as newspapers, maps, film, and even oral utterance, the work of the anthropologist Jack Goody in uh, African uh, uh, interface between orality and literacy in Africa is an important here. We need therefore 
an overarching concept if we are to prosecute the far more sophisticated research into an exposition of the history of the book now required. Uncouth, though it may sound, I suggest we have to settle for the history of text of which the history of the book is, so to speak, one subset. And that is virtually a citation from the last sentence of Mackenzie's uh, Panizzi Lectures on Bibliography and the Sociology of Text. Let me be a little more specific. To exhibit text as an agency, not only of literary and cultural change, but also of change and continuity in general, and secondly, to exhibit the history of the book as a subset of the history of text, we have to derive our historically, diachronically usable concept of text from synchronic contemporary critical theory. Thus, in addition to uh, the idea of cultural production, which is uh, uh, Bourdieu, publicity, Öffentlichkeit, Jürgen Habermas, reader reception, Jaus and Dizer, canon formation and archive, Michel Foucault, the Forgive the German, the Bewusstsein industry, the, con the conscious industry based on the, the Frankfurt School of Cultural Sociology, which is Hans Magnus Enzensberger, particularly uh, the uh, German Sozialgeschichte der Deutschen Literatur. It depends on Bourdieu, Habermas, and Enzensberger very intimately for its whole uh, uh, conceptual underpinning. For an example, at long last, from the only finished exercise in the history of the book so far, of all this, uh, the Histoire de l'Edition Française, I would take Maria Boschetti's exemplary chapter on what she calls the stratégie éditoriale, editorial strategies, of 20th century Parisian publishers, such as Bernard Grasset, the first publisher of Marcel Proust, and in particular Gaston Gallimard, showing on the basis of Bourdieu's model of cultural production how Grasset, Gallimard and the like exhibited a classic progression from avant-garde to establishment publishing from the pre-1914 Nouvelle Revue Française under the editorship of André Gide to the La Bibliothèque de la Pléiade, the interwar years and post-war years, a combination of, shall we say, every man's library and Oxford English texts. Since the study of the history of the book is, at the moment, conducted on a national basis, I suggest, provisionally, as a portmanteau concept and no more, the cultural nation, conceived as distinct from, though interacting with, the political nation of conventional historiography. I might say, one had time to show that um, Matthew Arnold's Cultural Anarchy, the General Arnoldian idea, the cultural nation, is... Uh, <coughs> Of fundamental importance here. For a secondary concept appropriate to the English and Spanish speaking worlds as distinct from but likewise interacting with their parent nations, I as an honorary Texan I have just worked most of this out at Daniel Austin, Texas, suggest the frontier a phrase not only of Frederick Jackson Turner but Walter Prescott Webb and the counter frontier a phrase of uh, Harry Hunt Ransom's, the counter-frontier which emerges with the eventual need of the frontier to appropriate and thereby to departicularize its parental cultural heritage. And we hope at the American Antiquarian Society and in particular at the John Carter Brown Library to set up uh, some colloquia to examine the viability 
uh, on a comparative basis between the history of the book in the English-speaking world and the history of the book in the Spanish-speaking world of these concepts of the frontier and the counter-frontier. Then, to contain the history of text within general history, its periodization of change has to correspond, by and large, with that of general history. Thus, in the case of a history of the book in Britain, this means our volume one is early medieval and high medieval, volume two, late medieval period, volume three, Elizabeth and the Stuarts, volume four, the revolution of 1688 and the 18th century Hanoverians, volume five, the Victorian Edwardian age, volume six, 1914 to the present day. Again, to contain the history of the book within the history of text, the thematic chapters of each of these period volumes that deal with the interactive circuit in Robert Darnton's phrase of producing, uh, writing, printing, publishing, disseminating, bookselling, receiving, reading, and archiving, uh, the history of libraries and so on, of books. These thematic chapters have to be put into context by a synoptic, synoptic master narrative of the interlinking of the book and other forms of text within the cultural nation during that particular period. Finally, to exhibit the book as an agent of continuity, as well as change, the master narrative for each period must itself interlink with those for the preceding and the following periods. The interlinkage pivoting on the challenge with which each period ends and the response to the challenge with which the subsequent period begins. The typical movement, so to speak, between periods would be something like first establishing, albeit temporarily, textual cohesion between the elements of the circuit and the cultural nation, then the breakdown of this cohesion due to the fundamentally independent variability of the elements, and then finally the establishing of a new but likewise temporary cohesion. Now, after all that abstraction, necessary abstraction, I think, let me spend the remainder of my time in offering a provisional sketch of the seven such multiple interlinkages which, following recent research in progress, we find in the actual history of the book in Britain. I want to do this for two purposes. Um, First, to anticipate or suggest uh, in advance uh, an explanation of what will be one of the um, uh, most... Uh, offensive to traditional uh, readers of the uh, history of the book if it proceeds in this way which is the uh, uh, smoothing out uh, of the uh, transition from script to print at the end of the 15th century and the decline in profile of the traditional figures like Caxton in particular and secondly uh, to Uh, as a result of that, to uh, concentrate uh, in this summary exposition on the medieval period, the period of of script rather than print, partly because uh, the two people, particularly the second person, Rosamund and Kittrick, going to address you in the next uh, few weeks, are, to my mind, particularly Rosamund, exemplary Uh, revisionists uh, uh, working on this uh, particular aspect of the history of the book. So I will deal with the the pre-1600 period in in a little more detail than I will be dealing with the remainder uh, of the history of the printed book. 
With the, with the retreat of the Roman imperial presence from Britain after the mid-5th century AD, the imperial book circuit, though no doubt weakened, did not collapse. Instead, it was assimilated with significant variations involved in the technological shift from the sequential papyrus roll, recall that the roll had to be read page by page in a, in a almost irreversible sequence, to the synoptic vellum codex, the point about the codex being that you could refer back and get an overall synoptic sense of the whole of the work, the text. The assimilation of this imperial book circuit with these variations into the surviving and strengthening Romano-British church and an important point that Rosamund McKittrick insists on, laity. There was a real continuity in the book circuit, however fragile, and this was eventually reinforced by monastic and royal missions associated most conspicuously with Gregory and later Alfred the Great, to the likewise assimilating Saxons and their orality. All this textualization, lay as well as religious, was an essential part of a movement common to the whole of the later Roman Empire in the West and its successor states, the study of which by Wallace Hadrill, Rosamund McKittrick, as I have said, and others, is producing a substantial revision of the conventional Gibbonian view of the traumatic Dark Ages. Whether the texts of Anglo-Saxon poetry, Beowulf, the Wanderer, and the rest, were simple monastic transcriptions of oral formulaic originals, or were composed by monks using orally-based matter, a matter of great controversy uh, in uh, study of early Anglo-Saxon poetry, as I'm sure you know, all the effectively surviving versions, not only of this Anglo-Saxon poetry, but also of Anglo-Saxon prose, such as the translations of Alfred the Great from the Latin or the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, were the work of monastic scriptoria, or as Rosamund McKittrick will say, monastic Episcopal royal scriptoria. Together with the Latin text composed by Irish and English monks, most famously, of course, Bede, this cultural work represents the first systematic use in the British Isles, if not in post-Roman Europe, of what we might call the synoptic potential of the Codex, as distinct from the sequential papyrus role, to help realize the aim of the Gregorian papacy and its royal associates to construct Western Christendom morally, as much as politically, on the basis of epitomizing what David Knowles, in his book on monastic orders, calls all that was best in the Hebrew and Roman genius, and syncretizing that with the natural grace, that's a phrase of Gregory the Great, of the barbarians. And there is an important synchronic analogy with orality and literacy in the third world today, here, as Jack Goody and other uh, cultural anthropologists are pointing out, as I've already said. Moreover, even the large and ever-increasing number of active lay patrons of the circuit during the Carolingian and post-Carolingian ages, such as in Britain, Alfred the Great and Athelstan, though developing relatively effective text-based secular administrations, this is Rosamund Kittrick's great point, can be said to have regarded themselves not as creators of a separate reading public, 
but as collaborators in the same Gregorian strategy of enlarging the quasi-magical horde of ingenuity, a phrase of Alfred the Great's, by means of the typically inward, meditative, yet missionary genres which, while sanctifying the barbarian heritage, issued from the monastic Lectio Divina. For example, the illuminated service books, such as the Lindisfarne Gospels, the Salvation History Chronicle, Bede, the devotional poem, Dream of the Rood, the homily, Elfric, and eventually the literary personal prayer and meditation, St. Anselm. It's on the basis of this cohesion that was created the first cultural nation in Britain. However, this involvement of Gregorian monasticism in secular textuality, though in principle clearly intended by Gregory, had the unwanted effect of assimilating the monastic circuit into and compromising it with a secular establishment with chronic rural and political instabilities and this to an extent that even as early as the age of Bede was beginning to be perceived as unacceptable by the monastic elite and that marginalized and eventually incapacitated the early medieval cultural accommodation and cohesion thereby precipitating among other things attempts at radical monastic Reform, Bernard of Clairvaux, and so on and so forth. This sets the agenda, so to speak, for the second period of the history of the book in Britain. The second period of the history of the book in Britain, therefore, concerns a wider, more functional and utilitarian rapprochement between the oral and written circuits that took place outside rather than inside the monastery. This functionalism helped to constitute the second stage in the construction of Western Christendom, that is to say, the cultural and technological, as well as economic and military, self-determination and competitiveness of Western Europe vis-à-vis -vis the other and older successor empires to Rome, Byzantium and Islam. Such autonomy was made possible in the West, as first Henri Pirenne and now Richard Southern and others have taught us, by the revival of interurban commerce and, in due course, the beginnings of more centrally coordinated feudal monarchies and bureaucracies. So far as textuality was concerned, this depended on the now deliberate integrating of the formerly monastic world of scholarship and education into the secular ambitions of Western Christendom that was in turn based on the reception from Islam of the Aristotelian scientific and technological system and that was mediated through the new, more outgoing universities and mendicant orders of friars, as distinct from monasteries. In particular, so far as textual cohesion was concerned, as the new generation of codicologically, yet also theoretically-minded medievalists, such as Malcolm Parks at Oxford, Derek Pearsall now at Harvard, and Alistair Minnis now at York tell us, this integrating required an intensified exploitation of the synoptic potential of the codex in the form of scholastic ordinatio and compilatio, as Malcolm Parks has uh, expounded it, embodied in the systematizing and indeed modernizing of the technical ventions of book design, such as the gloss, the chapter heading and subheading, the running title, and the analytical table of contents. One of Malcolm Parks' great uh, points that uh, the modern, the book as we know it, uh, uh, predates the invention of printing as far as its form, its, its basic form concerns, far more than has been realized uh, hitherto. The pushing back of uh, the idea of the 
book, uh, particularly uh, a book design, back to 15th, 14th, 13th, 12th centuries, the pushing back of the uh, idea of, of uh, written record uh, in Michael Clanch's famous book, From Memory to Written Record, back from uh, the, even the high Middle Ages into the early Middle Ages, is a very important element in this smoothing out of the perspective of the history of the book um, from its, uh, well, now superseded, but old-fashioned uh, idea of um, God said, let, Newton, let Gutenberg be, and there was light, or there was book design. It further, uh, this uh, mod, uh, uh, system of intensified exploitation of the synoptic potential of the codex further implied a similar modernization of the whole book circuit, commercial scriptoria in university and city, committed to progressive economizing in script format and materiel, and the ordering of the archive, finally, through college and similar libraries linked through systematic subject and union catalogues. Above all, it entailed the emergence of a scholastic as distinct from monastic lectio, involving, in the words of Malcolm Parks, a ratiocinative scrutiny of the text and consultation for reference purposes rather than meditation in the monastic sense, and self-consciously synoptic, compilatory, if I can use that word derived from compilatio, authorship, not only in the world of international Latin scholarship, for example, the Encyclopedia of Bartholomew the Englishman, but also in vernacular literature, the various friars' miscellanies, as Derek Pearsall calls them. And in due course comes the construction within the discourse of compilatio of the distinctive literary personality interacting with a lay reading public in Britain, Langland, for example, and most conspicuously, Chaucer. From our point of view, then, the further technologizing of the word and the useful schematism here is Walter J. Ong's, represented by the shift from script to print was like the transition from roll to codex, or later from print to the post-print media, not so much a flash of inventive genius as a lengthy and multifaceted response to the demands of a by now, in the course of the 15th century, rapidly increasing, perceptibly new, but still unstable reading public that not only existing technology, but trade organization and resources in general were less and less able to meet. In this case, instability of the public was due not to any revolutionary impact such as that of Christianity upon the Greco-Roman world, but to the more pragmatic yet equally relentless laicization of thought and action which followed on the failure of scholastic textual cohesion, the failure of the attempt to stabilize permanently the relationship between the transcendental and the mundane. In the widest context, it was an aspect of the transition from what recent cultural historians of Europe, specifically Dennis Hay and Geoffrey Elton, have called Christianitas to Europa, a Europe composed to an increasing extent of nations which became more and more autonomous, not only politically, but also culturally, but where Britain, to begin with, and for some considerable time afterwards, played a distinctly provincial role vis-à-vis -vis France and, more briefly, Spain, a cultural provincialism based largely on Britain's then geopolitical status as an offshore island of Europe. Thus, Caxton, 
Though he in a way truly invented Ing Lit and its publishing with his highly constructed editions of the Canterbury Tales and the Mort d'Arteur, now appears to us as an essentially transitional figure in that his capital resources and even his readers derive more from his prestige as a senior merchant adventurer importing, among many other things, books from the continent, rather than from any developing, let alone established, local market for print as such. Moreover, it is true that early 15th century textual instability and the partial stabilization of text due to the arrival of print with Caxton has been hitherto most widely discussed and theorized upon in connection with the variant manuscript texts of the new literary personalities, Chaucer and Langland. Indeed, they now precede Shakespeare as presenting us in British studies with our first major editorial and hermeneutic problem. I'm referring, for example, here to the controversy between George Kane of the Athlone edition uh, of Piers Plowman and Derek Pearsall. But equally, if not more significant, was the textual instability introduced into 15th century religious and political discourse by the dissemination in manuscript, in manuscript of Proto-Reformation, Wycliffeite, Bible translations and tracts. And the more substantial, if nevertheless short-lived, stabilization achieved during the English Reformation and Renaissance in the 1520s and 30s, rather than by Caxton in the 1470s, by the complicity of interest between printing as a now rapidly organizing trade and the new cultural political authority proposed by, in Geoffrey Elton's words, the Tudor Revolution of Henry VIII and Thomas Cromwell. This stabilization embraced not only religious and literary, but most of the other aspects of cultural and political production. Not only the Great Bible and the canonical 1532 works of Chaucer, published by Thomas Godfrey, as distinct from Caxton's Canterbury Tales, but classical grammars and translations, and in particular, parliamentary proclamations that Geoffrey Elton uses as the main evidence for what he calls the policing of the English Reformation. Thus was constituted the theory and practice of the Tudor Commonweal, which inaugurated the second and recognizably modern British cultural nation that takes its place, albeit, as we have said, hesitantly and with confusion, within an emerging European comity of such cultural nations, a comity which began to open out, in Geoffrey Elton's words, until the world was to all extents Europeanized. Much more rapidly and briefly, I come into the uh, uh, period of the history of the printed book in Britain. For the remainder of our story, we have to characterize printed textuality in terms of a technological-commercial, as opposed to the earlier ecclesiastico-political, dynamism and expansionism. A dynamism which aims at what Mackenzie calls, in an important chapter in volume two of the New Pelican Guide to English Literature, ubiquity, by pervading popular as well as high culture, a ubiquity which is also inventive, developing new extra book modes of presentation, of textual presentation, such as the engraving, the atlas, sheet music, and most dynamic of all in their cultural political effect, ephemera, such as the pamphlet and the newspaper. However, again, this dynamism required control 
and leadership, which, to begin with, the British cultural nation, even more provincial in comparison with Spain and France during the epoch of so-called Baroque mercantilism that emerged in the mid-16th century, found difficult to provide. Unlike Spain, and in particular unlike France of the Grand Siècle, mercantilism in Britain had a dysfunctional effect on those cultural adventurers, publishers, major authors from Shakespeare and Dunn to John Milton, and librarians, Robert Cotton, Thomas Bodley, who were involved, willingly or unwillingly, in the shift from morality and script to print as one of the main agencies for the consolidation of cultural independence within Europe proposed by the early Tudors. Indeed, by the end of the period in the 1680s, mercantilism had rendered futile the attempt to hold in cohesion through trade corporatism, the stationers' company, and state censorship, the inevitably proliferating modes of printed text, whether heretical pamphlet, which is John Milton, subversive news book, or the snap version of an oral text represented by the so-called bad stage door quartos Shakespeare which for us constitute our next editorial in the hermeneutic problem. And the great uh, case at the moment is the so-called two versions of King Lear. This, I better pause and say, has been treated in uh, important detail by Don McKenzie in his unfortunately so far unpublished uh, Sanders lectures that I am suggesting we shall publish in an un- Uh, revised form in our journal publishing history. Anyway, what had begun as positive complicity between Thomas Cromwell and the printers became uneasy accommodation under Elizabeth, breakdown during the English Civil War, and in retrospect at least, specious temporary stability during the French-style Stuart Restoration. And this sets the challenge for our fifth period. The expansion and final establishment of the ubiquity of print, not only within the cultural mainland of Britain, but also its provinces and colonies, had to await the post-mercantilist Whig and later evangelical and utilitarian supremacies. Let's say the commercial revolution, as Peter Matthias and Charles Wilson, J.H. Plum, that followed, that followed on the revolution of, of 1688 and the geopolitical expansion of Britain away from its status as an offshore island and the consequent slow but steady replacement of French by British ascendancy in the world at large, not only economically and politically but also culturally, so-called First Empire. In particular, ubiquity was established first in terms of medium with a steady subordination of residually independent orality and script to the expanding dominance of print and its producers, especially in the provinces and the North American colonies, through ephemera such as the newspaper, the magazine, and the pamphlet. Ubiquity was also established in terms of textual genre, the major new ongoing, as well as the old transitional, as well as transitional genres, the periodical essay, the novel, the children's book, and pamphlet verse, David Foxon's pamphlet verse, being largely associated with print. By the opening decades of the 19th century, printed textuality was perceived as a distinct, but at the same time potentially dangerous estate, the fourth estate, embodying the public mind, 
within the nation, including its colonies and ex-colonies. Commercially based, yet associated with an expansion of literacy amounting to a reading revolution and with a new textual cohesiveness, cohesion, emerging by and large from the internal cultural dynamics of commerce itself. What recent socio socio-cultural historians following Jack Plum and Harold Perkin call the birth of the consumer society or the entrepreneurial ideal. The work of uh, John Brewer at the Clark Library is considerable importance here. Come to the sixth and penultimate uh, period, uh, Victorian Edwardian age. Entrepreneurially based printed textuality and cohesion was driven to the peak of its effectiveness and ubiquity as Britain and an English-speaking world far more extended than the French or the German that was culturally as well as economically centred on Britain achieved the zenith of its ascendancy in the world as a whole in the course of the 19th century. This, amongst other things, involved the, cons uh, involved the innate conservatism of the established book trade being repeatedly challenged by succeeding generations of entrepreneurs who nevertheless exemplifying the dynamics of modern cultural production that I talked of in connection with Anna Boschetti's use of Bourdieu's uh, model, eventually assimilated into the already well established vocational format of family, firm and partnership progression from avant-garde publishing so to speak uh, to establishment publishing for example so far as high culture was concerned following the transitional generation at the beginning of the century represented by Byron's and later Darwin's publisher John Murray we have in the 1830s to 50s Chapman and Hall publishers of Dickens Blackwoods publishers of George Eliot Bentley Macmillan eventually as I've said publishers of Hardy and Yeats Smith Elder Rutledge and even the so-called conservative Moxham, publisher of Tennyson. Then, next generation, Castle and Chateau, publishers of Mark Twain. Then, final generation, Heinemann, William Heinemann, publisher of Conrad and John Lane, publisher of Oscar Wilde, list of Oscar Wilde's Salome. Such dynamism was presided over and, and rendered more or less comfortable by the broad complicity of interest constituting what following George Malcolm Young and others, has been called the Victorian mind, and exemplified best, perhaps, by Dickens and his readers, to use the title of George Ford's book. Uh, that is to say, social critics on the one hand, as well as sensational lovers on the other. The Victorian mind reached its apogee during the middle decades of the century, uh, George Malcolm Young's high, high, high noon, and was symbolized by, if not embodied in, the new kinds of intellectual and administrative centralization represented by the development of an information industry. For example, Bradshaw's railway timetable first appeared in 1839. By the appearance of public, including national libraries after 1850, and the archiving of pervasive printed textuality, ubiquitous printed textuality, through effective legal deposit, the effect of Panitz's reform of the British Museum Library in the 1850s. On the other hand, the ambivalently missionary drive of the British book trade overseas, phrase being Christianity and commerce, was never effective enough by itself to satisfy the cultural expansion of the English-speaking world on the frontier and the counter-frontier. After an initial uh, 
The point there being that in French Canada, at least up to uh, um, the end of the 18th century, uh, Paris publishing was deemed to be uh, adequate, uh, much to the uh, trouble of French-Canadian publishing tradition. After an initial phase of largely indiscriminate dumping in the colonies of texts speculatively overproduced in the metropolis, and piracy by the colonies, a perceptibly essential text underproduced, and Ireland before the Union of 1801 with Britain playing a major role here, the development of printed textuality on the frontier and the counter-frontier can be represented in terms of a cultural-political scale balance with Britain, initially the weightiest at one end, and the United States, starting with the East Coast on the 1820s, and by 1914 having increased to almost equivalent weight at the other, and with the Commonwealth of Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, India, and eventually Black Africa, beginning to move along the scale away from Britain as, following the United States, they likewise steadily achieved political and then cultural independence. The story of copyright being of conspicuous importance in this respect. Specifically, within any ex-colony or group of colonies, the cultural development from frontier to counter-frontier can be seen in terms of, first, a progressive geopolitical cohesion from frontier to province to confederation. An important and, I think, underused book by Josiah Royce on California, which I happen to come across with I'm a visitor, you, I'm sure you know it very well, seems to me to make these points you know, very usefully indeed and ought to be um, uh, more, more widely known than I think it is. Secondly, a devernacularizing progression in cultural genre, from newspaper to magazine to novel. And thirdly, eventual pluralism between the cultural regions and ethnic groups within the ex-colony. Initially, it was the culturally triumphant populist newspaper, coupled, as in the case of William Randolph Hearst, with the next populist medium film, that embodied the reverse importation of counter-frontier textuality back into the mother country. This, and the later but associated rise of independent book publishing in the ex-colonies, principally in New York City, to parity and beyond with London, formed part of the agenda for the next and final epoch in the history of the book in Britain. We come now to what I called our existential situation with which we started. Thus inevitably, or so uh, since R.C.K. Ensor's book on Edwardian England in the Oxford History Series, it has seemed, by the closing decades of the 19th century, the entrepreneurial Victorian public mind was felt to be no longer fully in control of the dynamism of print and literacy, neither socially, geopolitically, nor culturally, as is shown by the growing mutual alienation between, on the one hand, American-influenced populist publishers, for example, Northcliffe, and on the other, self-consciously avant-garde minority publishers influenced by Europe, in particularly France, for example, John Lane and the Yellow Book. All the while, however, mainline publishing looked to the comfortable middle-brow market, for example, the heritage reprint market of Everyman's Library, for its future, yet at the same time attempted to re-establish cohesiveness by essentially defensive cartelization, the Net Book Agreement, the Publishers and Booksellers Association, the Society of Authors. In general, this can be seen 
following Hugh Kenner's recent and very unpopular expose called A Sinking Island, as an aspect of the falling apart of the late Victorian and Edwardian entrepreneurially, entrepreneurially based empire, which among other things revealed the relative conservatism, amateurism, and undercapitalization of the book, British book trade in contrast perhaps to France and certainly to Germany that may prove terminal to the central tradition of the book in Britain. A very interesting document here, I think, are the two books by Stanley Unwin, Truth About Publishing, The Truth About a Publisher. Unwin, having been trained in the Leipzig book trade and spending most of his life trying to introduce more a sense of greater professionalism in the uh, traditional areas of the book trade in Britain, his role as um, the Publishers Association and also in the uh, British Council book promotion scheme is documented. Uh, two was over documented in those two books by Sir Stanley Uncle Stan subsequent to 1914 then as is symptomatic of an age of technologically driven cultural mass democracy English language textuality becomes further pluralized first geopolitically as as we have said following the United States the book circuits and the other former colonies and dominions become increasingly independent of yet competitive with that of the former mother country and now, modally, as the post-print circuits of what Walter Ong calls secondary orality, radio, sound, film and television, become similarly independent and competitive. And as in due course, they fragment the public mind still further, producing by the 1960s, with which we started, the virtually autonomous subcultures, characteristic of radical textual incohesiveness that results, resulted in the view of some conservatives in both banality and violence. Among the high cultural responses to this challenge after 1914, following on Lane's minority publishing, minority publishing represented by Lane, are first, publishing by the second generation of the avant-garde of specific genres targeted on specific audiences. And T.S. Eliot attempting to model Faber and Faber on Gallimard is of key importance here. Secondly, more democratically, quality paperback publishing. Alan Lane and the Penguin Revolution, and post-Keynesian welfare state patronage, the British Council, the Arts Council, and so on. And thirdly, so far as the archiving of texts is concerned, the replacement of the classic autonomous research library represented by Panitzi's British Museum by multimedia library networking. Nevertheless, and finally, more significant may prove to be the rise of what we might call ecumenical entrepreneurs in the English-speaking world as a whole. Currently, Robert Maxwell, Rupert Murdoch, are now converging in Europe, particularly Europe after 1992, with Matra Aschit, France, and Bertelsmann in Germany. They expand the populist tradition of Hearst and Northcliffe in order to moderate, or rather to capitalize on, disorder by developing or improvising various multinational and multimedia complexes and conglomerates, which, among other things, supersede the amateurism, conservatism, and undercapitalism of the book trade as we have known it in Britain. One concludes then with a question. Might the marriage, whether shotgun or not, of literacy and secondary orality mark the closing of the circle that opened in the Dark Ages, the reaching of a textual stasis. Now whether stasis or not, and whether it's terminal or not, that is for another occasion. Thank you.